Good morning. Uh, I wanted to start this morning by asking a question that um, everybody hates being asked, particularly around this time of year, which is simply, uh, who has started their Christmas shopping yet? No, this is a more worry, yeah, this is a more worry. And the next question was, who has finished their Christmas shopping? Oh, man. Wow, okay. Right, I'm feeling truly rebuked and challenged already. Well, Emily and I, we, uh, we ventured out into the tune yesterday and uh, to begin said task. And I, um, I think mentally I checked out by shop number two, I think. Um, and I think the cr- given the crowds of people crammed into the city, but we made a start and, um, or M certainly did, uh, I spent most of the time remembering why I did my shopping online last year. That's what I did. Um, but whilst we were in the city, though, we did, we did do something that was, well, that was much more interesting, in my opinion, um, than shopping. And much more interesting than trying to work out what on earth do you get a dad for Christmas. Dads are a nightmare. And I'm a dad now, but Seth obviously is not going to get me a present this year, sadly. But dads are a nightmare to get. What, what do you get dads for Christmas? Nightmare. Anyway, much more interesting than that. What we did was we went to um, the art gallery, uh, the Lang Art Gallery, to see the Linda's Vaughan Gospels. Now, I know a few of you have been to see them, and uh, I believe this is their last week, I think, that they're here. I think they, they're going on the, la- um, on the 3rd of December. So I would highly recommend that you go and see them, if you can this week. If you can spare half an hour, go and see them. Because I found the experience um, quite emotional, actually. Not only if you're a follower of Jesus do I think you should go, because I think they're an absolutely fantastic thing to behold, because they were actually play a bit of a pivotal moment in the history of Scripture in this country, but also as a piece of history for the Northeast. I think they're absolutely breathtaking and, and utterly, utterly unique. For those who don't know the Lindisfarne Gospels, and there's a picture on the screen, they are illuminated manuscripts of the four Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And they were produced in the early 8th century in the monastery at Lindisfarne on the Northumberland coast. And it is the best documented and most complete insular manuscript of the Anglo-Saxon period. That sounds really cool, doesn't it? I copy and pasted that from a website because that's far too good for me to say. But they are, they're brilliant. They're utterly brilliant. They're astonishing. And it, it was and it is a beautiful artistic achievement. And the, as, you, as you can look at them, and, you can, and there's pictures of them there around the exhibits, and they were eventually, they were translated from the original Latin into a form of Old English, wh- which makes it actually one of the earliest English translations of the Gospels as well in this country, so it's utterly fascinating. And if I'm not selling it to you, go and speak to a sprightly senior group, because they went to see it, and they also enjoyed it. So if you can spare half an hour this week, I would highly recommend you go and see it. But the other thing that for me was, was quite moving, as you walked around the exhibition, is that there, there were verses from the Gospels on the walls. Verses from the Gospel of John across the walls. In several places, God's words were being read. And as I stood in the exhibition looking around, I was thinking about all the thousands upon thousands of people that have seen the text of Scripture as they walked around the exhibition. I thought that was amazing. I was, I was sitting, I was, well, sitting, well, there were no seats, sadly. But I was standing there, 
thinking about how God was working in the midst of all of this. And I wondered as the people were leaving what was on their minds. And I prayed that it was the words of the texts on the, screen, uh, on the walls. And one of the verses that was on, the, on, the, uh, on one of the walls was John chapter 10, verse 28, which is on the screen there for you. And these words contain astounding truths from our Lord and our Savior and our King, the Lord Jesus, where he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. What a moment that must have been to have heard those words from the King of glory, the Son of God. No one will snatch them from my hand. And I wondered what the people passing by, I wondered what those words meant for them. And, and then I asked, what do those words mean for me? And then I asked you this morning, what do those words mean for you? And it led me back to look at our passage this morning because these words that Jesus speaks, they, they speak of complete security. Something that, if we're all honest, is something that every person is looking for in this world. Complete security. Our passage this morning from Hebrews chapter 6 speaks of this immovable and this unshakable security that Christians enjoy or should enjoy. And the question for many of us is, do we live in the light of that security? We've been looking at the book of Hebrews, and over the last few weeks, we've, been, we've kind of been working through this sort of break in the wider argument of Hebrews. I kind of, it'll be on the screen there in a second. If, if you can remember, back in Hebrews chapter 5, the, the writer had been beginning to look at, at Jesus in the role of, as, as high priest. And he was a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who was a character in the Old Testament. And, and I won't say any more about that. Spoilers, that's next week. Andy's going to take that on, so I'm not going to say any more than that. But that is where we were in Hebrews chapter 5 a few weeks ago. And then the writer, he kind of breaks from that section. He kind of pauses the argument, if you like. And the writer begins to lay into the readers a little bit, if we're honest. He lays into them. And they pen this this very passionate warning to the readers, exhorting them to, to not abandon the Christian faith. Don't abandon Jesus. Keep going. And the writer pleads with them that they instead should deepen and mature in their faith. And last week, Andy took us through that very challenging passage whereby the writer challenges uh, the readers to demonstrate their faith, to show diligence in serving each other as they wait for Jesus' return. And, and so today we've arrived at chapter 6, verse 13 to 20. And our passage this morning kind of finishes off this warning section, which started in chapter 5, verse 11. And it's also trying to bring the reader's attention back to Jesus as the role of high priest. So as you can see the kind of squiggly arrows, this is the kind of the section we've been looking at. And this is where we're going to finish here. And then next week, Annie's going to take us back into Jesus as the role, um, in the role as our high priest. Now this section we've looked at, and this section that we're going to finish today, if you've been here over the last few weeks, it's been tricky. Probably an understatement, really. But it's been a challenge, isn't it? Those words that we've read and we've looked at, I think it would have made the original readers feel quite insecure. It would have made them 
asked questions about where they stood, which I think actually was the point. The writer had made some quite difficult statements concerning their re- uh, the reader's own walk with God and the service of each other. And, and I would recommend if you, if you can go back and read those sections and listen to the messages on our website to see what the writer says. But the reader, they've likely come to this place in their minds where they've been asking all sorts of questions. Things like, so this, this following the, the Lord Jesus, is this all up to me? Where, where is the provision of God in this? Where, where can I lay some encouragement? And I think it would have made them feel a bit unsure. It would have definitely made them feel uncomfortable. It might have made them feel a bit insecure. And what the writer is doing here, rightly, is, is, is they're indicating the seriousness of, of the reader's responsibility and our responsibility in responding properly to the gospel and that our faith be a faith that is demonstrated, all essential stuff, all really needed to be heard. But the writer does not intend to leave the reader feeling insecure. That is not the, the writer's intention. And so we have our passage this morning, chapter 6, verse 13 to 20. I'm very thankful that Andy took on the previous two and I'm having this one, the encouraging section. Our passage this morning, chapter 6, verse 13 to 20, it seeks to end this section on a note of encouragement whilst also reintroducing the topic of Jesus as our high priest, which we'll look at next week. So let's read our passage. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 to 20, but I'm going to start our reading from verse 10 just for the sake of context, okay? So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the uh, the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf and he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That is our reading this morning. Our task, really, this morning is fairly simple. Our task is to understand and believe the truth of who God says you are. That is our task this morning. Our task is to be utterly clear in our minds of the security by which God himself declares that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are his child. And that identity is totally and completely secure. And so through that assurance, that secure understanding of who we are, we can and should go on to serve diligently with joy and in peace. 
we are, the passage says, to be greatly encouraged. That is our task this morning, which sounds quite simple, right? And it's a challenge to me that if you aren't greatly encouraged a bit later on, that I've not done a good job, okay? So you can come and tell me afterwards. If you're not greatly encouraged, didn't do a great job. Our writer here says that they desire that the readers and we who are Christians today do not become lazy, but press on in serving and living for Jesus. Let's look at verse uh, 12 to 15 again. It'll be up on the screen for us. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. The writer is seeking to challenge us and challenge the reader by reminding them of an example of someone who would have been very well known uh, to the original readers, given that they were once Jews, and that person is the person of Abraham. Someone who is and was known in the Old Testament as a person of faith. Abraham is a, is a key figure of Jewish history. And one of the reasons he is so widely honored and widely loved is because of the way he demonstrated his faith in God and, and in the promise that God gave to him. And you can read the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. But in our passage, the writer makes reference a couple of times to, to promises. Now, arguably, much of the story of the Bible, certainly much of the Old Testament, is in some way deeply concerned with promises. Specifically, promises made by God to individuals or to groups of people. And these promises often took the forms of agreements or contracts. The, the word sometimes used is covenants. And one of the key figures that God made a promise or a covenant with in Scripture is Abraham. And in fact, almost the entirety of the Old Testament primarily focuses in on Abraham's family and his descendants. And, and it is Abraham's descendants that eventually becomes the nation of Israel, the Israelites or the Jewish nation. And it is their story that we follow through Scripture. Now our passage this morning references a promise made by God to Abraham. So we're going to unpack that a little bit for the next five minutes. Just to unpack, we're going to be flicking through a couple of passages in Genesis. If you want to start turning to Genesis, please go and do that. But the promise was that God was going to make Abraham and his descendants into a great nation. A nation that would outnumber the stars in the sky. Look at Genesis chapter 12, 1 to the first part of verse 4. The Lord has said to Abraham, to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you to a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. God called and chose Abraham not only to become a great nation but also that through his family and his descendants the whole of the earth would be blessed. The whole of the peoples of the world would be blessed. The promise given to Abraham is not just for him, but God says actually this promise is actually for the whole world. And then a little later on in Genesis chapter 17, we read these words. God says this about his promise. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. 
walk before me faithfully and blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Aaron fell down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be a father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. <clears throat> I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. In this section, Abraham is called the father of many nations. So not only would Abraham be the father of his own nation, the nation of Israel, but he'd also be the father of many nations. And in this we see that God is divulging to us his ultimate plan to bring blessing to the nations and ultimately to restore humanity to its relationship with him again. That is the idea. That is why Abraham was chosen. That was his task. God chose Abraham and his family ultimately to reverse what had happened as a result of Adam and Eve uh, and their disobedience in the Garden of Eden. When they disobeyed God, when they turned their back on him, they said, we don't want you, God. We want to live lives our own way. And sin entered the world. But God, out of sheer love for you and for me, did not choose to abandon Adam and Eve or abandon humanity, but chose Abraham and his family to bring about restoration to humanity and to restore us back to, to a place where we could be in relationship with our Creator again. That is why I, Abraham was chosen. And this blessing that was to come to the whole of the world through Abraham's family that we've read about is ultimately fulfilled in Abraham's greatest descendant, Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, the blessing that was promised through Abraham is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Specifically, it is received by those of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus and given our lives to him and are walking faithfully with him. That promise that was given thousands of years ago. The church planter and the key figure in the New Testament church, Paul, who wrote much of our New Testament, he explains this for us uh, in his letter to Galatians in chapter 3 where it says this, The real children of Abraham are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God will make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles, the non-Jews, with the same blessing he promised to Abraham. This promise given, given to Abraham thousands of years ago is ultimately fulfilled in us today. For through faith in Jesus, we enter into the blessing of that promise given by God to Abraham. Oh, we've got one more section of Genesis to cover. Our passage states that when God made this promise to Abraham, it says that God swore by himself. And now this is making reference to another passage in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham's faith is tested. And when Abraham shows his faith in God, God reaffirms his promise with him by saying this, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, 
that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I shall surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Again, in this reaffirmation, once again, the coming of Jesus is referred to where it says, and through your offspring, through your seed, as it says, uh, as it is in the Hebrew, all nations on earth will be blessed. In many translations, that seed is singular. Through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed. That is referring to Jesus. But there's a couple of puzzled phases in the room, right? There's a couple of puzzled phases in the room because why does God swear by himself? It doesn't seem like a very God thing to do. You know, people often say, I swear on such and such, okay? To confirm uh, or to affirm the seriousness of the promise that they're making or to convince someone of their honor. God, God does not need to swear on something. Our God is not untrustworthy. In fact, our passage states, our God cannot lie. Within himself, he is totally holy, totally righteous, totally just. So why do it? Well, our passage suggests that God swearing by himself is for Abraham. It's meant to be an encouragement and a comfort to Abraham. God swore the fulfillment of his promise on his own name and on his own character. And there is nothing higher or more authoritative than that. Let me read again, verse 13, and then 16 to 18 for us. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take a hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Often when people make a promise today, you hear them say, I swear on such and such. That thing is normally something with great authority or great worth, something that they deem greater than themselves or more important than themselves. For God, there is nothing greater than him. He is the creator and sustainer of all things, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. He is supreme and he is sovereign, the only being in all of the cosmos and all of the universe that is totally of honor and totally righteous. Why does he do it? These verses are to re-emphasize the point that God is not like we are. He, unlike us, is totally trustworthy in his character. His promises to us, therefore, are guaranteed. His word should and does suffice. Yet in this instance, for the encouragement and the comfort of Abraham, and for all of his descendants that would follow, and that includes us, those of us, who have believed in the Lord Jesus. For our comfort and his, God not only announced the promise, but he confirmed it with an oath. 
And these are the two unchangeable things that is made reference in our passage, the promise and the oath. And what this simply reveals to us is that God is totally and completely serious in his promises towards you. Completely and totally serious. His words are true and they cannot be shaken. In a world where humanity struggles in its search for solid and secure truth, a place to stand firm, a place of purpose, a place of meaning, a, a place or a person or a foundation by which they can live and move, our Creator God calls out to us and says, I am truth. My word is truth. My promises are true. Jesus, God the Son, God made flesh, what does He say? He spoke these very powerful words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so these promises that we as Christians, those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus this morning, those promises that we have, those blessings that we enjoy through our faith in Jesus, let me read a couple for you. That we are God's children. That we are co-heirs with Jesus in, in the inheritance of heaven that we are indwelt with God the Holy Spirit, that we are justified and made right in God's sight, that we are his holy saints in the priesthood of God. We are a part of his family. We have been given gifts, all of us, to serve the church family. All these truths and much, much more are steadfast. They're sure, they're secure. They are unshakable. They can be stood upon and depended upon. When God speaks and promises, his words do not falter, his words do not fail. They accomplish what they are set out to do. And whatever God says about you, or whatever he declares you to be, then it is so. If he declares you are forgiven, then you are forgiven. If he declares you are his child, you are his child. And why am I laboring this point? Why is this essential for us? Because if we're honest, we can often doubt. We can often doubt God's love for us and doubt the identity that God has given you. We know it. We say it. When we were first saved, we felt it and embraced it. But as we've walked with God a while, the wonder and the magnitude and the truth of that love can sometimes diminish. And we can begin to doubt God's love and his forgiveness and his mercy. And if we're honest, sometimes we even question God's trustworthiness. We begin to ask the question that the devil asked humanity right at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Did God really say... Does God really love me? Will he really accept me? I've messed up again. Will God really forgive me and restore me? Has God really given me gifts to serve the church? The theologian A.W. Tozer once said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me paraphrase. How we view God and how we see God matters. And if we've got a faulty lens, 
through which we're looking at God, then we've got a serious problem. And we will not grow, and we will not mature. And so I ask these questions. Do your thoughts about yourself indicate that you doubt God's love for you? If you analyze your thoughts or feelings towards yourself or others, do they show a deep down denial of God's love for you, his forgiveness for you, his mercy and grace toward you day by day? Our understanding of who God is and the lengths that he has gone to to restore us to himself affects everything else in our lives. It really does. If we've got a faulty view of God, then we've got a serious problem. Ephesians chapter 1 says this, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, I pray, says Paul, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. No matter how you feel, no matter your life circumstances, no matter if you've strayed a little or a lot this week or a month or the last year or the last couple of years, your identity, if you're in Christ, is sure and it's immovable. God has promised it and he's confirmed it. Your identity as an accepted, secure, and significant child of God is assured. And if you've wandered this morning, he will receive you. What did we sing earlier on? He's a good, good father. We often don't. We say it quite often. Father God. Sometimes we just see God as this person on a throne with a rod he's a father and if you've wandered this morning he calls to you he is that father waiting for you with a prodigal son that parable that Jesus spoke waiting for you to return and if you haven't perhaps wandered this morning but you're doubting you're struggling you're barely clinging on know this your position is secure and you, if you remember nothing else remember that this morning if you're in Christ your position is secure if you're in Christ you are saved your name is engraved in the book of life written on God's very hands you have been forgiven you've been called to rest in an assured hope you have the riches of his glorious inheritance you've been redeemed by his incomparable great power this is where life's longings are fulfilled and this is where all of life's thirsts are quenched what our job is as followers of Jesus is to remember this which is partly why a little later in a, little, in a few moments we're going to take communion together. To not only remember what Jesus has done for you and for me and, and continues to do in his role as, as high priest in heaven right now, but also to remember how he's changed us and transformed us and renewed us and forgiven us and given us this new identity and brought us into the eternal kingdom of God with all of the blessings that brings. Our job that we so often fail on is to get our thinking right when it comes to who God is, what Jesus has done for us, and what position that places us in, and the security of that position. Do you doubt your position this morning? If you're in Christ, if you know you've given him your life and you've surrendered to him and you're seeking to follow him day by day, then you are his, and your hope is assured. 
And my simple question to you, if you haven't done this, why not? Why not? What is stopping you? What is stopping you from taking hold of the hope that Jesus offers you this morning? What's stopping you? For those of us who are followers of Jesus, much of our walk is reminding ourselves of what we already know and encouraging each other to focus on these things. And so as we draw to a close this morning, I want us to read the last two verses of our section. They're going to be up on the screen in a moment. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 to 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Where our forerunner Jesus has entered our behalf, he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I love this illustration. A hope that is an anchor that is firm and secure that has been carried into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What's that referring to? This is referring to the tabernacle and the temple, the places where, by which God was worshipped in the Old Testament. And in the tabernacle and the temple, there was this huge curtain that only the high priest could enter once a year to represent the people and to atone and cover over the sins of the people and of the nation. And recognizing that for a relationship with God, sin must be dealt with. Our, our, our passage says our hope is behind the curtain. What's behind the curtain? God's throne is behind the curtain. God's very presence is behind the curtain. And some, someone, our passage says, entered on our behalf. Actually, what the passage is getting at is that on the cross, Jesus' death was a sacrifice on behalf of our sin. He took the punishment of our sin. And one of the amazing things that happens, if you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, what happens? At the death of Jesus, the curtain that separated God's presence from his people Torn from top to bottom. Divinely torn. And what this passage in some way is picturing is that as Jesus died and the curtain was ripped, signifying that through belief in Jesus, all could enter, all could enjoy God's presence. What this verse is hinting at in a way is that Jesus is our anchor. He anchored our position, us standing with God. He anchored it behind the curtain, in the very presence of God, at God's throne, our anchored hope reaches into God's very presence, his very heavenly throne room, and that's where it is today. It reaches there and it is secured there. He, Jesus, placed it there, anchored it there, never to be removed. Your position is secure. Our access to God is secure. Our forgiveness is secure, anchored by the one who went before us and died in our place and rose again to give us new life. One of the commentaries I was reading this week said, it's as if he chained us to himself and passed through the death we deserve, the punishment for our sin. He carried us into God's presence, ripped the veil or the curtain in two, lodged himself as an anchor before God's throne of grace and chained us there and placed us there and because he is there we are there because he is there we are anchored there too and as he holds on to the throne he holds on to us in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil 
Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because nothing can unanchor him from us or us from him. No storms of sin, no gales of guilt, no floods of fear. We may be tossed about, but our anchor holds. We will struggle, we will doubt, but thanks be to God. We are not the anchor. Christ is the anchor. Our, built is, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not our own fidelity, not our own piety, not our own anything. There is no Jesus and. There is only Jesus, and he is more than enough. This passage is meant to cement our security. It's meant to tell us that the onus is not on you. The onus is on Christ, our anchor. We could not save ourselves, folks. I could not take the anchor through the curtain into God's presence. My sin disqualified me, separated me. I could not remove it, but through God's love, Jesus was sent, and through his sinlessness and through our laying hold of him, he gifts us his righteousness and his goodness, and he cleans up our sin, and he can take us into God's presence, and he anchors us there. And that is our position, that is our place, now and forevermore. What is interesting about the image of the anchor is that an anchor is normally dropped at the end of a journey, isn't it? But when it comes to our heavenly journey, when it comes to our heavenly voyage, the anchor is dropped at the beginning. The moment you give your life to the Lord Jesus, at that very moment, the end of your journey is assured at its very beginning. As you give your life to the Lord, you cling to him. That anchor is there, and it's secure and the end of the journey is assured as you start it. Wow. Got a couple of smiles in the room. That's good. Praise God for the gospel, folks. Our hope is anchored to the throne. Why? Because Jesus is there at this very moment. This very moment as the angels swirl around the throne. Jesus is there at this moment. Your name is written on his hand and your hope is chained in God's presence. We need to sing. <laughs> we need to sing. Hallelujah. We need to sing. Band, please come on up. And as they come on up, let's reflect about these astonishing truths. We need to turn to God in worship. But what has struck you this morning? What is God saying to you? Where is your security placed? Have you been doubting God, his love for you, your place and position with him, his character, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, your standing before him? You've been wandering. You know that you aren't living right, but you want to come back and be restored. That just simply starts with a step. What did Daniel say earlier? There is someone here this morning who needs Jesus. Maybe today is that step. Today is the day to take that step to him. He waits for you. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. Let's see.